This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, good evening, and welcome to the second session of Out of This World Healthcare, Space Medicine and Its Influence on Earth. It's my pleasure tonight to introduce you to a distinguished member of the UC Space Health team, Dr. Tammy Chang, who is an associate professor of surgery in the Division of General Surgery. Before I get into her intro, I also want to introduce my co-chair, Dr. Stephen Robinson, who's joining us from hundreds of miles off the surface of the Earth or uh, another planet known as UC Davis. And we're really happy to uh, bring to you Dr. Tammy Chang tonight. Um, She is a gastrointestinal and acute care surgeon in the Division of General Surgery here at UCSF. Her clinical training includes internship residency and chief residency in surgery at UCSF. And she did her undergraduate work at UCLA. So a real UC uh, alum and fan, and we're really happy to have her in the Space Center In addition, she completed a clinical fellowship in minimally invasive surgery and bariatric surgery at UCSF as well. Her research experience includes a postdoctoral fellowship investigating three-dimensional organization of hepatocytes in rotational bioreactors. And uh, part of her inspiration is in the UC system, but I have to give a little credit to Harvard as well, where she did her MD-PhD. Her background demonstrates her strong commitment to facilitate transfer of advances in laboratory research into clinical applications that benefit patients. She holds her MD, PhD, as I mentioned, combined degree from Harvard Medical School through the Medical Scientist Training Program, and her PhD is in the field of immunology with a specific focus on immunoregulation in autoimmune disease. And this is going to be an exciting, exciting talk tonight where she explains to us a field that is incredibly complicated, but with her visuals, I think we're all going to come away with a much better understanding of the long-term goals of tissue engineering and basically developing a basic liver unit for therapeutic implantation and how she leverages the space environment to accelerate that work. I also want to remind everyone that we've dedicated this series to our dear friend, mentor, colleague, inspiration, Dr. Millie Hughes-Falford. And I'm very pleased that Tammy uh, will be giving a a deeper introduction of Millie tonight. So, Dr. Cheng, thank you so much for joining us and, and please take it away. Thank you so much, Einar, for that wonderful introduction. So I want to begin with uh, with talking about uh, Millie, and uh, she passed away last month, and was a great loss. Uh, and I, I want to share some personal stories with Millie, and and I think she, um, um, her accomplishments are many. Uh, to me, she was um, a friend and a mentor, and it's appropriate tonight because the reason I can give a talk on tissue engineering in space is because of Millie. Uh, she, as, as Einar introduced, was my postdoctoral mentor. I did two years of research with Millie when I was a surgical resident at UCSF. And how I found her was I was interested, um, I started reading some papers about cellular aggregation, so cells coming together in 
microgravity simulated bioreactors that were NASA designed. And that really captured my imagination. Now, I think there's a, a lot more work in these cellular aggregates, and you may have heard of them being called organoids in the press. And so there's a lot of things we're learning about organoids. But when cells are cultured in microgravity or simulated microgravity, they could form these aggregates, these organoids. And I was uh, really fascinated by that, and I wanted to um, do research on it. And I went to the library, and I read some papers, and I found that Millie Hughes-Fulford was at UCSF. Uh, uh, and that she was not doing research in tissue engineering with the liver, which is what I was interested in, but she was using microgravity to study the effect on, effects on bone and immune system. So I co-called Millie and says, you know, hey, I, 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 uh, uh, I, I'm a resident at UCSF. I, um, I read your papers. I'm interested in this aspect of microgravity and how it might uh, be used for liver tissue engineering. Uh, can I come work in your lab? And she said yes. And and that's uh, how it started. And I, I tell that story to illustrate what uh, an open-minded, generous spirit Millie was. I mean, this was not, I came to her as, as uh, essentially a stranger. It was not uh, a scientific question that she was investigating at the time. Um, but she welcomed it, she supported me, and that's how I got started in this field. And, um, and it's from uh, the work that I did with Millie for those two years while I was a resident, that was the basis of my career today. And I, I will actually share some of that data and um, later on in the talk of how we got started. But very appropriate for me to dedicate this talk to Millie because she was how I got here. In addition to, to talk about tissue engineering space, which is what the main talk is about, I wanted to tell some stories about Millie because during the two years that uh, I was uh, working with her, I also had an opportunity to participate in spaceflight experiments. And we had some science adventures together and one of them is uh, going to the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan to launch spaceflight experiments. You may remember that the Columbia disaster, um, uh, where the space shuttle um, uh, was destroyed upon reentry and the crew was lost. And after that time, the science research in space um, halted, was stopped. And there was one particular project on the Columbia that the data was lost. And that experiment was called Lucan, where we, the goal was to study um, the effect of T-cell activation. And Millie strongly felt that to honor the crew that lost their life doing science, that we needed to continue this project. And she found ways then to keep doing the science. 
And that included collaborating with scientists in the European Union, and uh, which at that time launched experiments um, from the Russian Space Agency in Baikonur. And we continued this experiment um, and took the experiment to the Baikonur Cosmodrome, which as you can see is, is, is a desert. And this is the Soyuz rocket that um, will launch the experiment and it's carried on a train. And uh, the Soyuz will then be lifted into the upright position. And uh, this is a, a photo of the launch of the Soyuz rocket carrying the experiment. But this experiment uh, came back with data and it showed that um, there was very important um, differences with T-cell activation. The T-cell is a very important cell type for the immune system and that these activation pathways were inhibited and that this was a major way where um, astronauts may be more susceptible to infections um, in spaceflight. Another science adventure we had was to the Kennedy Space Center, and this was to launch another immunology experiment, um, this time with mice, looking at how the immune response is changed in spaceflight in an organism. And again, we had to pack up our lab and we had to, um, and this is the Space Life Sciences Lab on site at the Kennedy Space Center, where we set up shop for two weeks to launch the experiment. And uh, really had an incredible time, you know, visiting the site and being so close to the shuttle. This was SDS-131, so Discovery's second to the last mission this immunology experiment was on board. And um, this is, it was a, a morning dawn uh, launch and the little fleck of light in the distance there is the launch site. And uh, we were three miles away uh, watching the launch and it was one of the most memorable experiences in my life to be, to be able to watch a shuttle launch and then wait for our experiments to come back. And this experiment found that the space polite immune dysregulation was really, it goes both ways. And so sometimes when the immune system is too strong, um, where, the, where the stimulation is too strong, the immune system is supposed to shut down. Um, but it, what we found was that uh, there's um, the activation of T cells, these important cell types are so affected that when they're supposed to shut down, they don't shut down. Um, and so the, the dangers to the, to the astronauts are uh, in, in long-term space travel is, in, is uh, immune dysregulation. So the immune system may not activate when it's supposed to and may not shut down when it's supposed to. And because of the work of Millie and, and others, um, the immune dysregulation has really been recognized as one of the major uh, issues to tackle um, 
in in long term spaceflight missions to moons and Mars as as a health risk that we really need to um, uh, address. And I think Millie's contribution to immune research and our understanding of uh, the effect of spaceflight and immune microgravity um, to to immune to, to immune regulation is really a, a lasting legacy. Uh, so, what, what I hope to uh, cover uh, during this talk is why tissue engineering is important, why we're even doing it, and what is the current state of the art of tissue engineering? What are people thinking about and, and doing and trying? And then hopefully convince you that tissue engineering in space makes sense and that it's an approach that uh, is worth thinking about. So first of all, why tissue engineering? And this is a graph that motivates my work. And it's essentially what is going on with, liver, uh, with transplantation of organs in this country and, and worldwide. Uh, so for the last 20 years or so, you, the, these lines kind of continue the same trends at coming out to, to 2020. You can see the green line is the number of transplants performed and it's pretty flat. It's about more than 20,000. And the orange line is the patients waiting for a transplant at the year's end. It's a line is slightly increasing during the years, but you can see the large gap between the number of transplants performed and the patients that are waiting at the end of the year. And this gap is not because surgeons and physicians don't want to transplant more patients. This gap exists because there are not enough donor organs for all the patients that need them. And when I look at this graph, what it says to me that is that there needs to be another approach. That transplantation uh, is important, it changes lives, it saves lives, but there has to be a different approach in order to bridge these two lines. And to me, that approach is regenerative medicine and tissue engineering. When I was a medical student, uh, I went to a talk by Dr. Joseph Murray, who won the 1990 Nobel Prize in Medicine for performing the first successful human kidney transplant. And he was a plastic surgeon by training. He really laid out the idea of the evolution of surgery in that talk, of the things that surgeons can do to help heal and repair. And first is to resect and repair diseased organs. And then after you do, we do that, we can reconstruct it, we can rebuild it. Um, and, and these are things that surgeons still do and do do all the time to treat disease. And then in the next step, and perhaps because he, he, he pioneered this, is transplantation, taking organs from one individual to an, another to heal. But even back then, before regenerative medicine was really a term, he predicted or thought that the next step in the evolution of surgery is promoting or 
um, stimulating the body to regenerate its own tissues and using, using the surgeon's skills to help do that. And as a medical student, I didn't, that really captured my imagination, but I didn't really know uh, how that was going to look, um, how, to, how that would really be realized. Um, but now I think there's several pathways to that, and tissue engineering is one of them. Well, I will be focusing actually talking to you about liver tissue engineering, specifically for the liver, and that's what I work on. And I want to convince you that this is a, an important problem, a difficult problem, but a problem that's worth devoting effort to. And the reason is, well, liver is a vital organ, which means you, you need a functioning liver to live. And it's also the only vital organ that we currently don't have a human-made device that we can support survival for at least a little bit of time. If your heart fails, there's something called the left ventricular assist device that can help your heart pump blood for a little while. If your lungs fail, there's something called the extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO that can help you oxygenate for a while. And if your kidneys fail, there's hemodialysis and a patient can be maintained on dialysis for years. But if one's liver stops working, we basically need a transplant. There's, we don't have anything right now that can even tie you over for a little bit. There's some things on the market that maybe can give you a few days, um, but that's really a bridge to transplant and um, it doesn't work so well and that's why it's not widely used. And so why is that? Why are we, uh, we don't, we still don't have, we haven't engineered something that can replace some of the liver's function? Well, when you think about the heart, if we want to reduce it to, to what the heart is really doing, the heart is essentially a pump, right? And so you can engineer a pump, a fancy pump, but it's a pump. The lung is actually, uh, is really a um, uh, oxygen exchange membrane, gas exchange membrane. And uh, that what is what an ECMO is, that we can also do that. And a kidney is essentially uh, at, at fundamentally a, a filter. And that is engineered too. But what the liver does is hundreds of biochemical reactions, all regulated, responding to various inputs and outputs. And it's, it's hard to machine that. And I would argue that to replace liver function, we need the hepatocyte, the liver cell, to be part of the solution. And uh, understanding that is, uh, and to make that happen is to understand how to uh, uh, keep the liver cell or the hepatocyte uh, functional in a tissue engineered system. So, the, so these are all the things that the liver does. It regulates whole body metabolism. It regulates toxins. It clears bilirubin, makes bile. It makes proteins, important proteins in your, in your blood. And the importance of the liver is uh, illustrated 
by when the lever doesn't work. Um, almost everything goes wrong. Um, patients uh, become confused, have, uh, have encephalopathy, the, the fluid balance in the person's body is, is changed. Um, you, you don't make the proper clotting factors. Patients uh, don't um, excrete bile properly, and so the skin turns yellow, the eyes turn yellow, and uh, the immune system doesn't work properly. And the liver also sits in a very particular place in the body, and anatomically, it's in a very interesting spot because it has two main inputs of blood supply. One is the, the red, the oxygenated blood that most other organs have too, that comes from the heart. But the purple or the portal vein is a vein, is blood that comes straight from the intestines. So everything we eat gets uh, funneled and, and the liver sees first. And in fact, the portal vein, the blood that comes from the intestine supports more of the liver's circulation than the oxygenated blood. And then the output is from the hepatic veins that goes back to the heart. So it sits in a very special place in the body with special inputs um, that is critical to its function. It also has a very complex microanatomy. Uh, it's, it's pieced together in these little lobules or, or uh, these hexagons that call called lobules. The, the inputs, the uh, portal vein, and when you sort of cone down and look at it, the inputs, the portal vein, and the hepatic artery kind of goes in and flows toward the hepatic vein over there. And then there's a countercurrent flow of the bile that flows back to the bile duct. And all of this is highly vascularized. There's single cell or two cell sheet, thick cell layer, thick sheets where there's blood flow so that um, all the cells can sample and, and, and really act as a, as a sieve and uh, detect uh, toxins that, that are coming through the, the intestinal uh, uh, circulation and, and do the metabolic uh, regulation that it's intended to do. So when you, when you look at this and you think, well, how, how are we going to make that? But when considering that problem, then you think, well, if we're going to have cells do it, what kind of cells can we use? Well, the amazing thing about the liver is it's a highly regenerative organ. So if we do a hepatectomy, if we resect part of a, of a liver, a healthy liver, that liver can grow back to its proper size and carry on function. And so in a healthy liver, the hepatocyte, the liver cell itself, is the one that regenerates itself. But in thinking about tissue engineering and if, you're, if we want to make a, a liver outside of the body that we could use to, to treat people, what cell types uh, can we use? And, and, and this is where the thought of stem cells would come in. And in particular, the induced pluripotent stem cells which are stem cells that are made from adult differentiated cells is my favorite. These are cells that uh, you can take a, a biopsy or a little bit of, uh, of someone's skin cells or blood cells and put uh, these transcription factors in or the, 
or, and, and change them so that they could uh, become a stem cell and become than any other type of cell in the body, including a liver cell. And one of the advantages of, of thinking about using uh, iPS cells or these induced pluripotent stem cells is, well, for example, if, I, if my liver fails, then potentially I can get a little skin cell from myself, have it become a stem cell and then differentiate into a bunch of liver cells and then take those cells back so if I'm taking my own cells back, then uh, there's no um, in, immune barrier that has to be crossed uh, in, in the case of, of, uh, of current transplants. And so if you, give, if you receive your own cells back, there won't be an immune response against that. So that's an advantage, right? Um, but that's about sort of a, a, a sort of a custom, like custom making yourself a, something to wear. Um, which may, may work for some people. But what most people want is to be able to go to a department store and pick out something off the shelf that they could wear right away. And for a patient who is coming in um, with a vital organ not working, uh, sometimes people don't have time to wait for this process of growing your own cells and getting it back. So the idea of having uh, something tissue engineered that's off the shelf is something that people are thinking about, but it can also be achieved with iPS cells, depending on the donors. And people have done studies that if we create enough lines from enough people, then there is going to be a type of cell that's going to fit almost everybody. And so that the vision of having off-the-shelf tissues that can match most people is really possible with this technology. So given that, what are people currently doing and, and thinking about in terms of tissue engineering? And I, I want to break it down into three major approaches, three major buckets of, of ways of thinking about building a, an organ that might be potentially used or therapeutic or implanted. One I'm going to call this prescribed design. Um, the other one I'm going to describe as decellularized scaffold. And at the end, I'm going to talk about the concept of self-assembly. So what do I mean by prescribed design? And I'm going to, for, for each of these, I'm going to talk about one recent paper that's been published in the literature on the topic. It doesn't mean that this paper is the best paper or the only paper. Um, it's just, I just want to give an example of what the cutting edge is, what people are doing, what scientists are doing when they're thinking about these problems. So an example of prescribed design that's, is having an idea of what you want to create and then having the technology to create that. And one of the main challenges in tissue engineering is figuring out how to get blood delivery to all the cells, especially if you're building a thick tissue. So to think back to that picture of the microscopic level of the liver, where you have all these blood channels and then all these cell plates, how can we make that? How can we get blood to into a thick tissue so that they get the nutrients and, and, and the oxygen? And so this is where, uh, if you can design something, the concept of 3D printing 
3D bioprinting. If you can design something using a computer program and figure out how to make it, then uh, you can design that and create that. And and 3D printing is printing, um, if you think of uh, uh, the old style dot matrix printers, basically a printer jet and then it prints like a dot at a time. And then these dots of cells or dots of uh, extracellular matrix and fuse together. And then you print the next layer on top until it kind of builds up like that. And as you can see, one of the, as you can imagine, one of the, the challenges right now um, for for liver tissue uh, for tissue when you're using that approach is that it's it's rather slow and keeping cells healthy and functioning during that printing uh, process is, is difficult. So what if you can print faster and you can print in sheets? And so this is where this paper comes in, where they they, they talk about printing in sheets. Um, it's called projection photolithography where uh, you can induce cross-linking of these hydrogels a sheet at a time. And uh, this is an example of them printing something that's like a, a chest rook. And by projecting light and just giving the, the right pattern of light in layers, they can print in sheets so that they create this object. And to go from that, what they would be interested in tissue engineering is printing tubes to begin with, because we want to print complex vessels and vessels that can interact with, with each other and can deliver the nutrients, the complex capillaries. And they actually found that um, if you change these hydrogel with a photoabsorber, that means absorb some of the light so that you can control the penetrance of the light a little bit. Uh, whereas if you don't, you can form these more intricate uh, tubes these smaller tubes. Whereas if you don't have the photoabsorber, the tube kind of just collapses on itself because it's, it's, it's so soft and, and, and uh, the, the polymerization uh, reaction just kind of comes in. Well, using that approach, they are able to print something more complex like a tube with valves, like a, like a, um, uh, valves that you could uh, in, in a vein. So using that photo masking technique that can print up through a sheet and have these valves over here and they can test it so that so that from these uh, uh, these valves will actually open with blood flow with the hydrogel um, uh, uh, material that they used. And if you flow something through it, they can actually stop this flow from going backwards, which is what we want valves to do when it comes to a vessel. Uh, they could print more complex patterns because these, these tubes can stay open in a smaller diameter. And um, uh, they want to really test the limits of can we the, press things that twist around other things and, and, and be more like capillaries or things that are close, right? So because we're here, we're thinking about the, the, um, the, the concept of gas exchange, right? And so this is, they design another photo mask where they um, design these channels to, to encircle this, the, this, um, this structure 
And you can imagine that this could be um, a complex, uh, uh, a simulation of a complex capillary network, right? That, that they're trying to recapitulate uh, with with printing, with pre this precise um, control uh, over uh, this printing technology, this lithography technology. Um, and you can go on and, and try to print other complex structures, like an alveolus, like a, which is a, a subunit of the lung, and try to print blood vessels or things that look like blood vessels around the lung, uh, the, 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 the alveolus that does the gas exchange. Right? So if you can design it um, in a computer program and then have your photolithography machine print those sheets by, by the different photomasking um, uh, uh, structures, and this is what uh, they can come up with. They could have this expanding sort of uh, moving uh, alveolus that changes with the air pressure. And, and they could flow this uh, red fluid down there to, to uh, uh, symbolize the, uh, the circulation. And... Uh, and the concept is, is that eventually you can get, just get more and more complex, right? If you can control the control the printing, you can print fast. Then um, you can print something um, much more intricate, maybe uh, with several units of these uh, intertwining vasculatures and and uh, and uh, air exchange uh, gas uh, exchange units. Uh, the same report also uh, extended this to, to the liver, uh, using this technology to print print um, a, a, a flat plate of, of vessels that's lined with vessels, and then um, the green is uh, cells, um, liver cells that might be uh, fed by the vasculature. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of this approach? Well, I think the, the big advantage is that you have the control of your design. You can think about what you want to create and then make what it is that you, you've thought up. Some of the challenges are that despite how complex and remarkable these structures are, they may still not be complex enough biologically. I mean, they, they, it's, those structures that I, saw, I just showed you is pretty incredible. But uh, the lung and the liver is even more complex than that. And, and it is possible that the, the, the technology is, and I'm not possible, very certain that the technology is going to get better and better. And maybe at one point we're going to be able to to really control at the single cell level where cells are deposited and, 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 and truly print um, a, uh, a highly complex circulatory system. But we're not quite there yet. So the other approach that I, that I wanted to highlight is this idea of decelerized scaffold. So the, the idea here is that you, uh, it's, 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 Maybe it's too complex to recapitulate nature from 
from the ground, from zero. Why don't we just start with a scaffold that's already there, that nature has provided? And so this is a study that used livers from pigs as the scaffold, as the sort of the building material to put human cells on. So the idea is from from the donor animal, you have this liver, and then you can actually digest away the cells that that are from the pig origin, so that then it just becomes all white. The, anything that's left is just the collagen, the, the support um, proteins that make up the structure, but the cells are gone. Then you recellularize it with human cells. And in this case, they're just testing human endothelial cells. These are the cells that line blood vessels. And so then you have a reseeding process where you replace just the protein scaffold um, with human cells. And the advantage there is that, well, you're starting with something that nature has built, right? It has its has the veins, it has these big tubes that you that a surgeon can sew in. It has the small microvasculature that's that's within the liver that's there with the complexity. And after you recellularize it with human cells, you can actually put it back. And in this case they put it back in another pig that they gave immunosuppressive medications to. But they chose a location that is very similar to the original liver, but just slightly lower. And so this is then very much like what uh, surgeons are used to doing for transplantation. They're similar, right? They they could put in this white, uh, that's the the decellularized uh, liver that they put new cells in. They in They sew in the graft. And then when they unclamp the clamps, you will see that it fills up with blood and becomes red immediately. And that's very gratifying. That's what happens in a transplant. When you unclamp those clamps, the the liver starts making bile almost immediately. In this study, they, after they did the trans, the, the implantation, uh, they gave one group, uh, just observed the uh, one group, and then they, they gave an, uh, another group uh, medications to d- suppress the immune system, to dampen the immune system, because this is, we now have human cells in a, in a, in a, in a pig body, in a pig organ, uh, or in a pig animal. And uh, they found that the, the grafts last a little bit longer when you give those immunosuppressive medications, but not that much longer. The longest survival was about 20 days. And still, this is in the beginning exploratory phases, but it's still pretty incredible that it has uh, it can last as long as that. Right? So when we think about the approaches of, of, of using this generalized approach of tissue engineering using a decellularized scaffold, the advantages are you're starting with a normal matrix or a biological matrix. It might not be human proteins in there, but it's actually close enough that, that the cells are actually used to seeing this rather than some, some chemical hydrogel that is not native but might be bio, 
compatible. The other advantage is that all the complex branching patterns and microarchitecture is there. And all that complexity is exists in this uh, natural uh, DCRS scaffold uh, as opposed to the prescribed design approach that I previously uh, talked about that you have to figure out your technology of how to actually print the, all those things. The challenges here is that it still requires the scaffold to come from an organism, human or animal. It's not something that you build the novel, you still rely on either a human or animal source. If you use an animal source, there's concerns about cross-species immune issues and infectious barriers. And there's still challenges to how to get cells back into a decellarized scaffold effectively. The third general area that I want to describe is, is the concept of self-assembly, meaning that we're going to give the cells a chance to signal to each other and do what they innately want to do as part of the tissue engineering strategy. And um, this is a paper published just a couple of years ago, looking at organoids from the sort of the liver pancreas bile origin and looking, really taking a cue from development, how, how, how organs develop. And what that found is that if they take, they, and this is starting from the uh, induced pluripotent stem cells that I have, uh, that was I, I uh, sort of introduced earlier in the talk. If you, they found that if you create one kind of organoid that's, um, and these are sort of early on in development where the liver and pancreas and bile ducts haven't really formed, but about to form. If you give them the factors to make an organoid that's a little bit more, toward the anterior gut or one particular type of gut cells. And then another type of organoid, the posterior gut spheroid, which is a slightly different aspect of, of differentiation. And you put them together. What they found is that at the interface where this, these two different types of cells are actually communicating to each other by some cell-to-cell -cell or short-term diffuse signals, that this is where there's changes, where the new cell types, where the new differentiation occurs. And again, this is putting two slightly different types of steroids together. And through, through days, what they found is at the intersection, the cell morphologies change. They start organizing themselves differently. And all the changes is happening right at the interface where these two cells touch. And from following just what these cells are doing, signaling to each other, you get progenitors of bile ducts, you get progenitors of the pancreas, you get progenitors of the liver, you get progenitors of the pancreas. So I, I wanna show this, this is an artist's rendition of what they have found um, it's it's uh, not exactly the, the, the science, what happened in their dish, but they, they use this to sort of illustrate their point. And you have two kinds of organoids and they come together and something happens at the interface. And then from there, they... Um, 
more differentiation happens. Like all these programs kick in, and 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 the cells start doing other things, and 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 we don't completely understand every step, but this we see complexity happening. Now, the reason I want to show this video is you see how um, you know these organoids just seems to be floating. And uh, in this, in this, in this, uh, in this space, uh, is that really what happened uh, in their experiments? Well, they in their experiment, this was in a in a matrix, flat on a dish, and the cells were doing it. But in this artist rendition, the these uh, um, the structure and this seems to be happening, sort of free-floating uh, uh, in, in this space. Imagine if this, you were really going to put this organoid in, in, um, in a culture dish. What it really does on Earth, it's going to sink to the bottom. So I just want to plant that seed in terms of, you know, even this artist's imagination of what's happening seems to sort of put this, uh, 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 put the, what the interaction of these organoids in uh, a suspended uh, space. So why does tissue engineering in space make sense? And why am I interested in that? Well, I want to show you this. And, and, and up to this point, we're talking about the solving the problem of printing complex patterns, complex tissues, compact capillary networks. This is what is in a zebrafish that happens naturally in terms of forming vessels in the hindbrain. This happens in every zebrafish over and over and over again. And you can see that there's something about these cells that make them do this, and it happens every time. Here, here are endothelial cells in a dish. You put an organoid in a dish, you give them a little bit of growth factor, and this is what happens. They start sprouting tubes. There's something innate about these endo, about endothelial cells that they really want to form tubes. So why not give them a chance to do that? So the idea of using microgravity or space is to take away the confusing signals like a plastic dish that doesn't exist anywhere in a human body and let the cells interact with each other and signal to each other and give them each other the correct signals. When the lab, what we have started to use, and this is Millie that I start, this is work that I started with Millie, um, uh, to simulate microgravity is using these rotating wall vessel bioreactors. When in function, the, these vessels are completely filled with fluid and they rotate around this horizontal axis. And uh, it creates a very low shear stress, low turbulence environment. It gives cells three-dimensional freedom to self-aggregate and self-assemble. And it simulates microgravity. And compared to liver cells that are grown on a dish, in the rotating wall vessel, Cell say is round, they start forming connections with each other, they start forming these organoids. 
And here's where I want to consider the issue of force, that the cells sense force. And that cells not only respond to biochemical signals like growth factors and cytokines, they also respond to um, their environment and force in different ways, different kinds of force. And um, in my lab, we've, in, we've been interested in um, the way uh, fibrosis or stiffened matrix, stiffened matrix in a diseased liver may exert force on liver cells and how that might affect their function. Depending on how stiff the surface is that a cell contacts, it actually responds differently by uh, uh, the, their cytoskeleton changes, and that affects their function and behavior. Uh, and in just comparing the way that cells look when you put them on a soft surface that versus a stiff surface, um, the cytoskeletal organization is very different. The cell size is very different. And when you... Uh, uh, apply different kinds of force to the cells, they respond differently. And here we're showing that with increasing stiffness, uh, increasing st stiffness as a force um, that cells are experiencing, you actually have decreased hepatocyte function. And that uh, uh, is correlated or uh, is related to uh, decrease in, in the expression of important genes. And I want to point out this, this gene called HNF4-alpha, or hepatocyte nuclear factor for alpha, because it's a very important uh, gene that controls a lot of other genes uh, important for hepatocyte function. And, and, and this gene is going to come back a little later. All right. So when you think about what this cell is experiencing in a dish versus these cells are experiencing in the rotating wall vessel in simulated microgravity, uh, and they look so different, and, and the forces on them are so different. And in fact, their functions are different. So um, this is work I, I did with Millie and published together. So the hepatocytes that are in the rotating wall vessel produce more albumin, which is a, an important protein uh, that hepatocytes uh, produce, reflective of function. And we, if you do a gene uh, analysis uh, this is global gene analysis of what the type of genes that it's expressed in a 3D aggregate versus a monolayer. There are many, but the processes that are turned on are a little are different from liver development and to liver regeneration. What we found is different that's upregulated in these aggregates that are formed in microgravity is a lot of functional genes. So function is increased or maintained when cells are allowed to associate with each other and form these connections with each other, uh, the way that their innate programs um, want them to. And when we uh, look at what is controlling all of these genes, we get the same hit as uh, what I showed you before, HNF or alpha. Um, in two different systems, um, we have found, that this one gene may be um, key to controlling how uh, the hepatocyte senses force, whether it be a stiff surface or uh, dimensionality, 2D versus 3D. Um, that it that this master transcriptional regulator is being affected, and that might affect gene function. 
So there are limitations to the rotating wall vessel or these uh, microgravity analogs. And that's because um, as the particles or the organoids get bigger, uh, you have to rotate the rotating wall vessel faster to keep them in suspension. And eventually you're not going to be able to do that because the shear stress is going to increase. And that's um, the, the thing that, that we want to avoid to, to keep them in this idealized, suspended um, uh, environment. So the size of what can be created using uh, ground uh, analogs of microgravity are limited. And, th and this is a video downlink um, from Columbia uh, uh, um, before the last flight um, of the rotating wall vessel in space. And what you can see there is that uh, the organoids that are formed in space are much larger compared to what is formed on the ground. So these are side-by-side -side comparisons of that experiment with photos showing that the, the organoids or the cell clusters that are formed on the ground are much, much smaller and scattered, whereas you get larger aggregates in space. And so these samples, uh, along with the crew, was lost when upon re-entry of Columbia and the, all, all we have of, of this experiment are these images in that video. But there is evidence that cells behave differently um, when they, in association with each other in, in orbit, in low Earth orbit. My lab right now has a funded project through the NSF and CASES to investigate liver tissue engineering in space with this concept that organoids in this high-quality, sustained environment of the International Space Station will be for, able to form larger, more complex structures and have a window of understanding whether we can, um, and by taking away confusing uh, signals, non-physiological signals, that we can um, form complex, vascularized um, tissue structures. And we have a, uh, a, a patented uh, uh, bioreactor design that we think will optimize cellular interactions uh, in, in the space station. So self-assembly. So, so, I, so I, I put tissue engineering space in the bucket of self-assembly. And I think the pros there is that it really uh, gives the cells a chance to do follow their innate programs, and it has the potential to really emulate the biological complexity and structure that is necessary to have full function of a complex cell like the hepatocyte. And the challenges there is that it requires a deep understanding of biology. And of course, there's the question of scale, whether we can really build a uh, large, thick structure with this uh, approach. So I hope I convinced you that uh, there is an unmet need in tissue engineering uh, in healthcare, 
and it could be and it it be a major change if we can um, figure out a way to create uh, tissues, functional tissues outside of the body that can use be used to treat people. There remains barriers of to create thick vascularized tissues, and that having a sustained high quality microgravity environment may be a key tool to um, facilitating um, and, and, and facilitating tissue engineering and, uh, and creating these vascularized tissues. I would like to thank the members of my lab uh, uh, who have been involved in um, the work uh, leading up to this point and our funding sources. And I'd like to especially acknowledge the NSF CASIS and NASA for their uh, support of uh, the specific work in tissue engineering space. All right, I'd like to take on any questions that people may have. Thank you, that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, I My co-chair, Dr. Robinson is on as well. I'm sure he's a little nervous thinking he probably quit flying to space just in time before his liver outgrew his brain. <laughs> I'm not sure how, I'm not sure if he's going to accept that joke very well. He is uh, going to share with me the Q&A part of this. Uh, we're looking for questions online. So audience, please don't be shy. This is a rare opportunity to speak with one of the world's experts in tissue engineering and one of the very few who've actually been able to take advantage of the microgravity environment in the ISS to, to prove out some of her hypotheses. I, I can start with one question, Tammy. Um, it, this is not so far-fetched in terms, obviously this will have great transfer back to earth. And that was the intent of your original work is how do we improve terrestrial healthcare in this, in this condition? Uh, but also, you know, in the long missions that I presented last week, the deep space missions, there are considerations of what will we do on three-year missions if we had some sort of injury with large tissue defects, burns or trauma, et cetera, even a myocardial infarction where a significant portion of the heart muscle gets lost. Is it conceivable way far out there that those might be applications uh, on earth and in space, that, that there are many other tissues that might behave in ways that you've demonstrated here with liver tissue. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think tissue engineering for, for um, uh, tissues like uh, skin is probably uh, much, it's gonna happen first in a, even now much more advanced than something like the liver where uh, it might be uh, a sort of thinner sheets that is, is required for coverage. And I think those things, uh, so tissues like that um, can, uh, uh, I think more potentially be uh, sort of a, a first goals of, of how, uh, of, of these applications. And certainly, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's difficult to think about um, what uh, astronauts will need <laughs> on a three-year mission um, and, and what uh, we could provide for them. But certainly um, any, any uh, approach that could repair and regenerate um, uh, would be 
very useful uh, if we could really uh, package it, min miniaturize it, make it easy. Um, I think that would be um, very useful uh, on that lonely mission. I'm gonna ask uh, Dr. Robinson, if I'm sure he has a few questions for you. It seems to me that it's astronauts will be the last person to benefit from, from this work actually, given how useful and exciting and, and relevant it is to the rest of the human race population to be able to do these large, large organ tissue drugs. So I'm excited about it. Um, and certainly when you think of long duration missions, um, you need to, you know, it's all about preparedness. And you know the state of your vehicle and your tools and your learning. You don't know so much about the state of uh, your body as you progress. And there's certain, certainly challenges and uh, uh, it's a hazardous environment in many ways. And you would like to know how, how, how is your body doing and what are the options in case um, you know, something serious happens. And uh, probably a question for both of you is, do you imagine there might be other analogs being developed on Earth? Um, ISS is fantastic, and it's going to remain a, a wonderful resource to us, I think, for a long time. But Tammy, do you have other ways of creating a microgravity environment um, besides the, the small centrifuge rotating uh, wall chamber that you showed us? And Steve, I, I know you've been thinking about this for a long time because creating artificial gravity is is one of the countermeasures that's talked about. So could could both of you take a shot at that? Sure. So so there are different analogs, uh, other analogs for microgravity. The one that I showed is called the rotating wall vessel, um, which just rotates around a horizontal axis. There's another uh, analog that we, we do have in the lab, uh, and uh, it, it was a a gift from Millie called a mm. random positioning machine. Mm. Uh, and what it does is it's a platform where you could put a, 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 your, your tissue culture or any kind of culture dish on. And mm. there is um, a computer algorithm to rotate this platform randomly in space wow. so that the gravity vector in the end cancels out to zero. Wow. And uh, and the advantage of use, using the RPM is that you can have a computer algorithm to simulate zero gravity, but you can also have a computer algorithm to simulate moon gravity, oh. Mars gravity, and any other partial gravity in between. And so one of the projects that we're looking at is, is the effects of partial gravity um, on uh, on, on uh, cell aggregation and also upper oh. function um, because it, it, in, in space, it may not be an all or none, right? And, mm -hmm. and in thinking about artificial gravity, I think one of the key questions is how much gravity is enough, right? How much gravity is enough to mitigate uh, bone loss or immune mm -hmm. uh, dysregulation? Um, maybe we don't need 1G. Maybe when you get to, to, to Mars, that amount of gravity is enough and maybe you can bounce back. Or when you're thinking about designing a spaceship, you know, having to design a spaceship that simulates 0.5G versus 1G saves you a lot of energy <laughs> to, to do other things, I would imagine. So I think sort of, how, sort of figuring out the, what 
is, is there a threshold of gravity that keeps biology functioning? And where that threshold is, is that is 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 important, and it's interesting. Mm. That's kind of amazing. What we don't know, we know a lot about one G. We know quite a bit about, you know, almost zero G. Mm -hmm. But for the things that happen from change in the human physiology, from the cell level up to you know bone structure, for the things that change when you go from one to zero, what happens if you go to from one to you know point three or point six? Um, it's amazing how little we know. Mm -hmm. I was also thinking about the application to food because one of the problems on the long missions is going to be how do we maintain adequate nutrition. And I'm wondering, Tammy, I know this is a little bit off topic from liver, but it seems to me that, that food sources, plants, for instance, would grow differently in microgravity. And I'm sure you've, you've, you've probably thought of that, but I, could you speak to that for a second? Sure, absolutely. There's a, a whole uh, area of research precisely on that, um, uh, food production uh, and, and how uh, plants grow um, and, and uh, very much so affected by gravity, um, you know, the direction of roots and stems and, and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, I think that's sort of, the, that's the important, th interesting thing about gravity in our environment is that all life evolved on earth on one G and like any science, we don't know what its effect is until we take it away. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's removing that variable. And up until recently, we haven't been able to investigate that very basic, basic biology is sort of the effect of bio uh, of gravity. We just assume this is the way it is. This is the life, the way life is, but um, it is the way it is because this is all we've known. Mm -hmm. for, for hundreds of years and we haven't had a chance to investigate so take the the variable away the gravity variable away and see what biology is there when it's gone so i think that's the exciting opportunity that we're uh, that we're able to pursue with the um, colonization of low earth orbit <laughs> that, that we have mm -hmm. an opportunity to ask these questions so dr Cheng, I, I have a question for you kind of an operational one can you imagine doing um, pursuing this research um, using CubeSats? Absolutely, and and thank you yeah. for that question. Thank you for that question, and and uh, because it is a question of scale, right? So 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 uh, when when I was uh, sort of discussing this idea with one of my colleagues. Um, uh, she said, "Well, yeah, this is interesting, but you're not really gonna." build organs in space. I mean, that's, you know, that's not really going to happen. And, 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 uh, you know, and I think the implication is, well, okay, you, we could do these experiments, but then we have to figure out how way to simulate gravity on earth or uh, I mean, simulate microgravity better on earth or, 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 or some other approach. Um, but, uh, as as you pointed out, uh, you know the the economics of of launch is changing. The accessibility of low Earth orbit is changing. Uh, yes, maybe we could figure out. 
either building a giant RPM or figuring out how to make magnetic levitation really work on Earth to, to create these suspended environments that's idealized on Earth. But if through these experiments we can actually we, we show that microgravity or this way of suspending cells is a key tool to, to allow them to interact with each other in their most natural state, then um, the economics or the ability and the technology to send things like CubeSats or sort of completely autonomous biosatellites that can utilize the uh, low Earth orbit environment and then return safely to some location Earth, I think it's it's not, um, it's, it's within... Um, I think within reach. Yeah. But the first is we have to show that it actually makes a difference. That, 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 that's what we, that is the key ingredient to, to, to making these complex vascular tissues. Um, and, and then I think if we show that, uh, there, I think there's actually a lot of interest in um, manufacturing in space because there are certain advantages and if we show that um, microgravity is a key tool for tissue engineering and that um, it is the most efficient and potentially economical way of generating these large-scale tissues, I, I think there, there, there will um, be interest in pursuing that. And Tammy, just in the sequence of things, would your next step to take some of the tissue and then implant it to you know, try to put it into the context of a really larger scale biological functioning system. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our, our proposed project um, with uh, NSF cases, the liver tissue engineering, uh, in liver tissue engineering project actually has a component where we're, we're um, proposing to bring back the vascularized tissue or the tissue that we generate in, in space back live and be able to implant into rats as a test of, function. Mm. Um, uh, of course, we have a lot of backup plans in case we can't bring back mm. live tissue. Um, but that's one of our goals is actually to be able to implant it and, and test function. And have you had success doing something like this um, deep underwater? So sort of suspended, uh, not truly microgravity, but I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, well, it might be easier to get something in the ocean then up to the ISS. Could you talk about that? You know, that's actually an interesting idea. I actually never actually have thought of that, um, that approach. But I think you bring up an important point, which is the idea of how buoyancy Mm -hmm. as a force is simulating, maybe simulating microgravity. Mm -hmm. And, and, And that is actually something... A, a, a thought that we're taking some inspiration from mm-hmm. um, because when you think about, I mean, buoyancy where we're training in, in water is how astronauts train to, to, to get used to a feeling of microgravity, right? So it's, it's different, but, but it, it, some aspects of it are, are similar. And so when you take it sort of down to a, a cell, when you think about development, because life on Earth evolved in an aqueous environment in water, uh, whether you're, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a 
fish egg in, in, in the water, or you're a mammal and you're a single cell in a, a mother's womb, um, you're in an aqueous environment as a single cell. Mm-hmm. And there's the buoyancy force on that. Mm-hmm. And as the single cell becomes two cells and four cells and eight cells and 16 cells and up to a fetus, the buoyancy force on that and the, the fluid around that changes. Mm-hmm. And how is that force being perceived by the developing mm-hmm. embryo? How is that force being perceived and regulating organogenesis? Mm-hmm. I think that is something that we're drawing some inspiration from and also what we're sort of thinking about when we're thinking about using microgravity as a tool for mm-hmm. tissue engineering. So if you want to think about us trying to recapitulate or simulate what cells might be signaling to each other during organogenesis, well, maybe in the beginning it has to be very, very buoyant. We're very low gravity, right? But then as you get to a larger and larger structure and those things are being formed, maybe you want to start adding back mm-hmm. that that gravity or decrease that buoyancy force because maybe those are the signals that's going to mature and and uh, and keep things functioning right so uh, so the, the, these are these are ideas these are conjectures but but certainly i think there could be a connection in terms of uh, of of buoyancy and, right. and 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 microgravity um and i think as we show sort of all of this has to do with how the cell perceive its environment and the, mm-hmm. how it perceives force. And the force can, can come in many ways, uh, uh, as I shown is sort of in, in how stiff a surface is or if it's touching other cells versus in a three-dimensional environment versus, two, versus a two-dimensional environment. But what it might come down to might be the same signaling mechanisms mm-hmm. right? and in terms of regulating mm-hmm. function. So. What's fascinating, you think of the ISS as a uterus. Maybe that's why they refer to it as the mothership sometimes. Um, Steve, do you see uh, questions in the Q&A? Because I'm not able to open it, but if you see one. Oh, you're nodding. All right, take it away. Yes, from uh, Dr. uh, Sonia Patel. What impact does radiation in space have on these cells and the experiments? Oh, I, I think that's a great question and a question that I cannot answer. Um, uh, but uh, I think there's an active uh, investigation on uh, on the effect of of radiation. Um, as you may be alluding to, uh, radiation and radiation damage is a uh, key risk, an important risk for long term space travel. What, what it can do, not only um, in its uh, potential to co- cause um, downstream carcinogenesis, um, but uh, it can cause um, uh, more immediate degenerative problems, including fibrosis um, uh, and and other uh, tissue damage. Um, And uh, the, uh, and and there is some, uh, some, evidence that prolonged radiation mean specifically to the liver um, make uh, uh, like any other tumor genesis or carcinogenesis may um, 
may increase the risk of, of liver cancer or liver tumors down the line, but it can also, because of the um, inflammatory damage, uh, cause fibrosis, which is the final common pathway to, to a liver failing. And I think those same risks and concerns are with every part of the, every organ in the body. And I think it's, it's a very um, active area and a focus of research uh, for NASA who are, who, who's thinking about sending humans uh, into deep space. And Tamia, I, the idea about looking at other types of organisms is so fascinating to me, that whole field of biomimicry. And um, I sometimes think of the liver a little bit like a sponge. And I think about the sponge and how they grow in so many different forms and shapes underwater. Are there models, biologic models that you think of in a biomimicry sense that, that represent uh, some of the work that you're doing? Um, what we are uh, modeling sort of on the, on the small level is using the organoids. And when we use, when we use the organoids, we don't only add in liver cells, which is one cell type, mm-hmm. but we also add in the endothelial cells, which is the cell type mm-hmm. from blood vessels. And we uh-huh. add in another cell type called the mesenchymal stem cell, mm-hmm. which is a, a stem cell that, um, uh, gives rise to things like flabroblasts or these stromal cells that produce the matrix. And what we're finding is that all three cell types are important um, in uh, creating the organoid and supporting function. Uh, what we're actively investigating and trying to figure out more in detail is what cell is doing what and, and exactly what roles they play in supporting each other. I think it's absolutely fascinating. The idea that not necessarily the goal isn't necessarily to create a whole organ, but if you even can create functioning tissue and you could percutaneously inject it into defects in organs, um, that, that concept is absolutely fascinating and relevant. We're doing it with other types of things, but to actually have the functioning biologic tissue that belongs there and inject that in is is really remarkable. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, that's uh, a concurrent or a parallel approach that um, is being investigated. Um, so, th- so there's the idea of, um, of creating something outside of the body that we could put into the body. But then a, a parallel approach that, that our lab is also investigating is getting the body to do it itself. Mm. Um, uh, and it kind of exactly what you're suggesting suggesting is is creating the environment or creating the the room or the niche for um, engraftment of stem cell derived cells. Um, So the body's the bioreactor. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Steve, you have another question? See your mic coming off. Uh, No, there's no more questions in the chat here. I was really touched to see your photographs at the beginning of the uh, of the lecture, Dr. Chang. Um, my, uh, you know, I was on the mission after Columbia, the first one, mm-hmm. and uh, my last, my final mission in space was um, one thirty, the one right before you, the one you saw. Yeah. Wow. Um, 
that those two weeks um, at Kennedy, I think is one of the most memorable experiences in my life. And um, yeah, that's, and uh, you know, I, Millie not only gave me the opportunity to sort of uh, really launched my career in this field, but also um, gave me the opportunity for these sort of once in a lifetime opportunities. Uh, uh, it, uh, uh, experiences and and going to the Kennedy Space Center, um, being able to go in there and just flash my badge and be let in every day <laughs> felt so proud. You know, just being in that yeah. environment and and, and 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 doing that, and it was is uh, uh, it, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, um, I agree. You know, I had a NASA badge for thirty seven years, mm-hmm. and. You know, you would think it was the hardware and the rockets and the spacecraft and stuff that's the exciting part, but really, it's the it's the intensity and the and the audacity of the human intellect and spirit that always got me excited. Wow! <clears throat> there is one more question I'm going to slide in here, Tammy, because it's such a rare opportunity to be able to talk with you and also have Steve here. The question is: Are you able to take any lessons? from living donor liver transplantation in liver tissue engineering? Oh, absolutely. Lessons all the time. And I think mm-hmm. that's why it's an evolution. I think we, we needed to know how to do transplants before we do liver tissue engineering. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's, that's where all the lessons are. Um, because we know how to put a, 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 another human liver in another human body, that is where we're taking off from when we do tissue engineering. Absolutely. And I think as we close this out, I want the audience and I certainly appreciate the fact that you are one of the people I define as the intersection people where these major inflection points happen because you have a foot in the clinical world. You, you do liver transplants. You're on the front lines of that as well as your research hat and your innovation hat and it really does create a, an acceleration or an inflection point and advances the film. So I thank you, Steve, thank you so much for, for co-hosting this with me. And Tammy, thank you for sharing the personal side of your career and your journey. And again, our big thanks to Millie for advancing your career, seeing your potential and, and facilitating this. And as I say over and over, She's created a legacy of generations of scientists and particularly women scientists and surgeons and space explorers that's going to impact going forward many generations. And, and uh, she's handed the baton to you. So thank you for sharing your time with us tonight. Thanks to everyone in the audience because these evening sessions are precious time away from other things you'd be doing. But thank you for your curiosity and your questions and your attention. And we'll be back next week. Thanks, Dr. Chang. And thanks, everybody, for coming to class. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.